Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the man who played 16 seasons in the National Hockey League from 1967 until 1983. He set an NHL record by playing 914 consecutive games in the regular season between February 24th, 1968 and December 21st, 1979, doing so with four teams, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Detroit Red Wings, St. Louis Blues, and Atlanta Flames. His record has since been surpassed. Uh, Doug Jarvis played 964 games. He finished his NHL career with 1,005 career NHL games, scoring 400 13 goals, 391 assists, 804 points total. It is a thrill to welcome the man whose number seven, which was also worn by Red Berenson, Joe Mullen, and Keith Kachuk, is honored with a banner that hangs over Section 106 at Scott Trade Center and salutes the best players in that team's history to wear the number seven, Gary Unger. Welcome, Gary. How are you guys today? We're doing really, really good. And as we mentioned, yesterday was Veterans Day here in the U.S. So it's fitting we kind of start this interview off talking about your father, who was a member of the Canadian Army. He built a rink in your backyard of your family home in Edmonton. You're given a pair of skates, but they were girls' figure skates. Um, (laughs) You actually might have been the inspiration for the Rolling Stones song, Paint It Black, because you (laughs) painted those figure skates black, and and you started skating with them. So uh, the question I have for you, did learning how to skate with figure skates make you a better skater than had you started skating with regular hockey skates? Well, here, here's the deal. Uh, they were white, they were girl skates, but they didn't have the picks on the front of them. You know how the figure pick, skates yeah. have picks? Right. Back then, uh, I don't know if the picks had come out yet. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe it was before the picks time. But they were they were they had normal blades on them, so it wasn't that much different. It just that they didn't have any uh, any support in the ankles. I, I I remember the first time that I never went over on my ankles. I started that was I was about three when I had those skates, but I, I was probably eight or nine by the time I wa- I wasn't skating on my ankles where I got a half-decent pair of skates. Now, much of your formal hockey development occurred in Calgary, where your father was transferred. The Toronto Maple Leafs signed you to a C-form, which we learned all about last week when we were talking about Teddy Irvin in the C-form, which was in the days before the creation of the entry draft. You would move to Southern Ontario and play with the London Nationals, which was coached at that time by Walter Turk Broder. You led that team in scoring. That team also had Rick McLeish and Walt McKechnie. At that point, excelling at that level with really good other talent. Did you think that the NHL was a reality for you? Well, you know what? That's why I went out there in the first place. Uh, I was playing in Calgary. I, I was born in Edmonton, so I skated my, my youth years, uh, you know, outdoors and all that stuff in Edmonton. And then we moved to Calgary when I was about uh, 11 or 12. So my, my minor hockey was played in Calgary, and I was a pretty good player in Alberta. Uh, and But all the players that were going into the NHL, Bobby Orr was playing for Oshawa. Uh, the Montreal Junior Canadiens were a good team, and the, the everybody from the East were kind of the players that were going into the NHL. So I didn't really know, compared to them, how good I was. And I got an opportunity uh, when I was... I was just turned 16. 
uh, a guy named Bob Davidson. Back then, the areas in Canada, they must have sat down and, and mapped out the areas because because I lived in Calgary, I belonged to Toronto. So Bob Davidson, a scout for, for the Leafs, uh, came to my dad and said, you know, would Gary like to try out for the Marlboros? And, and I said, well, yeah, I want to find out if I'm any good uh, compared to some of those guys out there. So that's how I ended up going out there. Uh, and they had so many guys in the Toronto organization that that's when I ended up going to London. February 24th, 1968, you're called up as a 20-year-old rookie by Coach Punch Inlack in an effort to make the playoffs. You fill in for the engine Dave Keenan. Um, Keenan. What do you remember about those 15 games with the Maple Leafs? Well, I remember one thing. I didn't play very much. <laughs> I, I went to practice. I lived in a hotel right uh, by Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, back then when there was only six teams, uh, uh, those guys had been uh, teammates for years and years. And when a rookie came in, there, there wasn't an awful lot of talking to the rookies because they were kind of afraid that he might take one of their their buddies' jobs. So I was a little bit on my own. I uh, walked the streets of, of Toronto as a, uh, when I wasn't practicing. And, uh, uh, you know, I was enjoying it. I, I was able to, you know, keep myself busy. Uh, but it was, it was a, a kind of a lonely time. It's interesting because, you know, obviously they sign you to that C form. They, they try to nurture you through into the, the system. And after only 15 games, March 3rd, 1968, you're traded to the Red Wings by Detroit with Frank Mahovlich, Pete Stemkowski, and the rights to call Brewer for Norm Ullman, Paul Henderson, Floyd Smith, and Doug Barry. Were you surprised by that trade after only, and as you said, you didn't play that much. Were you surprised that after 15 games they basically said, all right, we're moving this kid? Well, I, I thought I was a throw-in. You know, I thought, yeah, these are big-name guys. Norm Ullman was a great player. Paul Henderson was the guy that scored all the goals and for Team Canada. Uh, you know, he hadn't scored them yet. Right. Yeah. He went on to <laughs> score the goal. <laughs> he was going to. Right. But uh, uh, it was a great opportunity for me. It was an opportunity for me. I actually met the team in New York. Uh, our first game was against the Rangers, and I had... Uh, Two years earlier than that, Gordie Howe was doing a thing for Eaton's Canada, which is a, is a, a big men's store in, in Canada, and he was signing autographs for them. And I stood in line for like three hours. I, I didn't stand in line. I sat back and watched the line as it, as it went down. And finally, after he'd been there for three hours or so, it kind of dwindled down. So I walked up to the table and then I was afraid to talk to him, and I turned and walked away, and I never, I never oh, got an autograph. So uh, <laughs> that particular trade, uh, Baz Bastine was the name of the general manager of Detroit at the time. And when we met the team in New York at the, at the hotel, uh, he came up and he said, Frank, how you doing? Peter Stemkowski, how you doing? How you doing, Pete? And he came to me and he said, hi, Norm, how are you? <laughs> and I thought, this guy doesn't even know my name. I, I don't think I'm going to be playing much here either. But uh, I went to Madison Square Gardens that night. I walked from the hotel. And, and it, this everything was exciting because, you know, just the fact that I was in New York, who cares if I was playing a hockey game? <laughs> and uh, I went into the dressing room, and, and on the board was written the lines. And I was playing center with Frank Mahovlich and Gordie Howe. That wow. was my line. Wow. 
Uh, we're, we're speaking to St. Louis Blues legend Gary Unger. You arrive in Detroit, and as you mentioned, Red Wings are coached at that point in your rookie season by Sid Abel. The captain is Alex Del Vecchio. The leading scorer is a 39-year-old Gordy Howe, who is your line mate as your first game in uh, Detroit Red Wings jersey. What did you learn from being a teammate of Gordy Howe's for 216 games? Well, Gordy was a lot, lot like my dad. My dad was one of the finest people that I know, uh, uh, a great leader. Uh, and Gordy, he was I, I had just one of those guys that, that made everybody around him better, first of all, when you're talking about hockey. But he also made everybody around him feel comfortable. I never saw him turn down an autograph. I never saw him tur- not talk to somebody and treat him like he was a friend, uh, whether it was a Zamboni driver. And my dad was exactly the same. My dad was the guy that took us, you know, was the guy that drove all the kids to the rink and picked guys up that their parents were busy doing stuff. And, and Gordy was just, just like that. I, I, was, I was just so lucky to, to, to have spent that time with a and, – and, and there was other guys on that team that were – we're the same. Alex was the same. Another guy that was a great mentor to me was Bobby Bond, defenseman from from the Toronto Maple Leafs. He he came over a little bit later, uh, but uh, you know to be with those type of guys, all those original six guys that you used to watch on TV back then, everybody in Canada knew every player. Even if a guy didn't play, they knew guys' names uh, for the Montreal Canadiens or the Toronto Maple Leafs or. Saturday night was hockey night in Canada, and, and that's what we did. So uh, it was just a thrill to be around them. Forget about, again, forget about playing the game. Uh, but the, the other thing was that my, my parents gave me so much confidence as a kid uh, that for me, standing on the blue line, and they were playing the national anthem, I, I started the game, I'm standing beside Gordy and Frank, and uh, they're playing the national anthem. I'm in Madison Square Gardens, and I said to myself, "I'm the game is the same. There's a rink and there's a puck, and they got a goalie and we got a goalie and we got five guys and they got five guys, and I, I it never bothered me. I knew I could play hockey, and it was like going out and playing scrimmage and in, uh, in the pond." When I was a kid, I, and I don't, I, I know that that came from from my upbringing and and the way my parents uh, brought me up. But it, I, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't. I just played because that's what I love to do is play hockey. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about Gordy Howe and you know being around the Rangers and covering the Rangers and seeing a lot of people that have had the opportunity. We had the opportunity to have Gordy on our show. I had the opportunity. Actually, I have something in common with you. I actually played on the line with Gordy Howe. <laughs> Granted, Gordy was 70 at the time, but uh, <laughs> still, but like, you know, even then, just looking over and seeing Mr. Hockey, he just uh, you know, larger than life figure. It's, uh, he's just one of the all time greats. You know, the story goes back in 1971, the Red Wings had an old school coach named Ned Harkinson. In some ways, he's the epitome, the later day Mike Keenan or even John Tortorella, like a very strict authoritarian, authoritative figure who makes unreasonable. You know, demands. You scored 42 goals as a sophomore in 69-70. It was the 70s. One of your signatures at that point was the flowing, you know, blonde hair, no helmets. You're dating Miss America in 1970. Harkness, as the story goes, would have none of this. He ordered all the players at that time to get crew cuts. 
Can you pick up the story there and what your reaction to that order was? Well, we'll go back a little bit. Ned Harkness was uh, a college coach, was the first college coach to come into the NHL. Uh, he coached at Cornell University. And when you coach college, you have to be, you know, you have to be pretty technical, technically sound to coach a, a, a good college team. But you have the, the uh, scholarships hanging over your players. So you can, you can control your players any way you want them. What I remember uh, with, with Ned coming in was he didn't want anybody to uh, – Alex and those guys smoke cigars. A lot of those guys smoke cigars after the game. Phil, I remember Phil Esposito. I mean, uh, he used to smoke cigars in the dressing room when uh, some of the young guys that I knew that, that got hooked up with the Rangers. Anyhow, he, he came up with all these rules and regulations of what you could do and what you couldn't do, and you were talking to guys like Gordy Howe and Frank Mahovlich and, and, and uh, uh, Alex Del Vecchio. You weren't allowed to wear leather suits. He w- I had a beautiful leather suit. I wasn't allowed to wear that because I was, uh, looked like I was on a motorcycle gang. That's what he thought. Uh, Stemmer was, Pete Stemkowski was my roommate. I know he lives in New York now still. Uh, what happened for me was I, I went with Carl Brewer all summer. I'd scored 42 goals a year before. I was a young guy. Uh, I had short hair that year. And I went to Finland with Carl Brewer on a, to a hockey school. And we spent the summer uh, hanging around Finland a little bit. And then my girlfriend flew over. Uh, and we went to Greece, and I, I loved the beach and all that stuff, and I was hanging around with a bunch of hippies, and I never got my hair cut all summer. So I came back to training camp, and I thought, geez, I kind of like my hair long. I don't think it's going to affect my game. I'm just going to leave it. And I hadn't met Ned Harkness yet. So what happened was Jerry Hart, another guy from, from the Islanders who got traded from, he was my roommate in, Saint Louis, or in, uh, in Detroit, I had bought 11 acres of land out by the airport, and uh, I always loved horses. I wanted to raise horses, and I was in partners with another guy, and he was boarding some horses out. So the day before training camp, Jerry Hart and I decided to go out and, and do a little bit of riding before we went to Port Huron to the training camp. When we went out there, there was a guy that had a horse that nobody could ride. So I said, well, I'll ride the stupid thing. So I jumped on this horse, bucked around in the corral for a little bit with him, and and calmed him down, and then we went on a trail ride. Well, the guy that owned this horse, he said, oh, please take my horse every time. The more he can be ridden, the better he's going to be. So I said, okay. So I took this horse, and I'm staying at the back of the pack, and we came through some woods to an open field, and when the horse saw the open field, he put his head down. I yanked back on his reins, and the reins broke. And this horse (laughs) took off 100 miles an hour across the field. I'm looking for a place where I'm going to bail out, and, and I figure he's going to slow down when he hits the trees on the other side. When he hit the other side, he didn't slow down at all in the trees. I went to jump off, flipped in the air, and I hit a tree about halfway up on, with my back. And I, if it had been my spine, my, my career probably could have been over, but it, it was kind of on the side of my back. And I, I went from there to the hospital, and that was back when there was six weeks of training camp, and I spent the first month of training camp in a, in a wheelchair. Wow. And I hadn't met Ned Harkness yet. 
Stemmer was at, at training camp with the guys, and he called me twice. He said, listen, you're going to have a problem. He said, this guy's made me cut my hair three times. He finally brought it back in an envelope, Stemmer, to show him that he got his hair cut. So Sid Abel called me. Now I was walking with a cane. So I, he said, you need to go up to training camp, say hello to the guys. So I said, okay. So I went up, saw the guys in the dressing room. There was still two weeks left to training camp to go. I still never skated yet. And, and, and uh, Sid said, well, we need to go for lunch with, and you need to meet Ned Harkness. I said, okay. So we go for lunch, and he, he never asked me once how my back was. He was drawing on a napkin how he wanted my hair cut. Oh, wow. So I figured, uh-oh, we're going to have a problem here. <laughs> so I got my hair cut a little bit, and uh, for some reason, I mean, this is, this is part of the Ironman streak, after two weeks of walk uh, with the cane, somehow I started the season. That was part of the Ironman streak. I was so far out of shape. By the time I went to uh, uh, the game, uh, I started the game, skated down the ice, went in front of the net. I think Bobby Bond or one of the defensemen shot the puck from the point. It hit me in the rear end and went in the net. I scored the first goal of the season for the Red Wings. And then went into a, an immediate slump because I was still trying to get back into shape from, from this horse injury. So anyhow, as, as that was going on, I wasn't playing the way I normally play because I was trying to get back into shape. The players were fighting and arguing with, uh, with Ned Harkness and all these rules and regulations. And finally, uh, the guys, you know, without knowing it, were not playing for this guy. It was, it was a disaster. So uh, we ended up going, I, I don't know the dates on it, November, December, somewhere like that, maybe a little bit later in the season. I mean, we were losing games, and we had a really good team from the year before, and we were doing nothing that we did the year before. So we went to Toronto. We were playing Hockey Night in Canada in, in Toronto, First period, it was 6 nothing for Toronto. Second period, it was 9 nothing for Toronto. And this is on... on Hockey Night in Canada. National TV. Yeah. Yikes. Party Alex and Frank, they didn't want to play. They were... They were I think we finished the, the game with, with two lines. The game ended up 13 nothing for the Leafs. So back then when the game started at 8 o'clock, you didn't get out of... Out of uh, Madison, or out of uh, Maple, Leaf Maple Leaf Gardens until probably 11.30. We jumped on a bus, and we went to Buffalo. We were playing Buffalo either the next day or the day after. And there wasn't a, a, a peep on the bus. We got to Buffalo, and I was exhausted because I was kind of double-shifting because lots of guys didn't want to play. <laughs> and we got there. It was late, 3 o'clock in the morning. I go to get off the bus, and a guy, a Dale Rolfe grabs me by the back of the shirt, and he says, put your bag in the lobby. We're all going over to Sinatra's. Well, I never drank. I, uh, I was a young kid, and, and that wasn't part of my, my lifestyle. So we go over to Sinatra's, which was a place where they made chicken wings, and uh, uh, they're all sitting at the bar, and guys are just drinking. I, I'm drinking Coke and eating chicken wings. I must have had 15 Coke and like three barrels of chicken wings. 
Now it's 4.30 in the morning. Oh. <laughs> and somebody said, okay, we're all going back to Gordy's room, have a meeting. Uh, Bruce McGregor was our, was our player rep. So we go back to Gordy's room, and we're all sitting around Gordy's room, and I think there was Gordy. It wasn't Gordy. It was Bruce McGregor, Frank Mahovlich, Bobby Bond, and one other guy, and they said, we've got this piece of paper, and we're signing it. We want everybody to sign this paper that we're not going to play for Ned Harkness against Buffalo the next game. So the young guys, you know, as a young guy, I'm, I'm excited just to be in hockey. You know, I'm not getting along with this guy, but I don't want to cause any waves. So uh, Gordy said, hold it, hold it. He said, I've been here for 18 years. He said, i got to call Bruce Norris and let, let him know what's going on. He said, i got a lot more to lose than you guys. So, and then Bruce McGregor said, well, I'll call Al Eagleson at the same time. So Bruce called Al. Gordy called uh, Bruce Norris. And Bruce said to Gordy, you can't cancel the game. We gotta, I'll take care of this for you. So Gordy said, okay, we need to play the game. Bruce promised me he's going to take care of this thing. So we play the game. Al Eagleson comes in, has a meeting with us as well, says we can't cancel the game. We end up playing the game. I don't even remember whether we won or lost again because it was just kind of a fog by this time. And uh, we go back to, to Detroit. We land at the airport in the morning real early in the morning, it was 7 o'clock, and they had the paper in those uh, machines, and you could only see the top of the, of the headlines. The headlines were, Nark Harkness fired his coach, and then when you open the paper thing up, when you put your money in, the bottom was, now he's general manager, and, he's got the, and somehow he had this letter with all our, our names on it. So that's when he started trading, guys. Wow. And now now you're traded. You're well, traded for a fan favorite, right? right in yes. Red Berenson. So yeah. yeah, he was an extremely popular player back then. What was the initial reaction when you got to St. Louis for you? you know, given, given that also by reports, the general manager wanted you, but the coach did not necessarily. Right. What was that last one? Uh, given the word, Scotty Bowman was not exactly. It was the owner basically who wanted the trade, and Scotty Bowman was basically lukewarm about losing Barons and having you come to the team. So how well, hard was that in terms of the Red fans? was their leader. I mean, Red was their, you know, he'd been the <coughs> their leading scorer for a long time. Uh, you know, he, he was the leader on the team. Uh, I don't think that, uh, I, I don't know how the trade came down. What I heard, this is what I heard, and, and uh, you know, you can talk to other people to find out, but uh, when Red scored the six goals, against Philly, Mr. Solomon, it was a very tight-knit team. Mr. Solomon was the owner of the team, uh, Sid Solomon, the junior. Sid Solomon III was, the, was his son, and he was part of the, the uh, kind of the management part of the team. Anyhow, when he scored the, three, the six goals, they presented him with a car and a, and a canoe and a shotgun. He liked to fish and hunt and all that stuff. And Mr. Solomon made a special trip to Jeff City. It was before they had personalized plates, and they got a, a license plate for RB, Red Baronson 6666, and they presented them with this car and, and all this stuff at the game. And I don't know how long after or, or whether it was even part of it, it may be even just hearsay, but Red didn't need the car, so he sold the car to Dan Kelly. The, the guy, uh, our radio guy. Right. <laughs> and Mr. Solomon was really upset. So I think that was 
again, what I heard, you should probably talk to Red Berenson about it. Maybe he knows a little bit more about it. But, but that's what I heard, why they were willing to let him go. And for some reason, uh, Mr. Solomon may have been, have, have been traveling with the team or on a trip or went to Detroit, and I had a big game against the Blues when we played in Detroit, and, and, and Mr. Solomon said to, to Scotty, he said, we need to get that kid. So that was kind of a roundabout thing. Myself, I was, you know, because of the injury and because of not being in shape, now I was only, you know, I, I normally had 25 goals at Christmas time, and I only had like 14 goals. And I was just starting to get into shape. And I, every town that I went into, there was a, uh, some kind of an article saying I was going to get traded to Montreal or I was going to get traded to Boston or whatever, and I didn't want to get traded. And finally, uh, into this, this uh, scenario, uh, Lefty Wilson came to me after practice one day and he said, you know, Ned wants to see you. So I'm thinking, okay, here's my trade. You know, my heart's just pounding. I go into the dressing room. Ned Harkness sitting in his, in his general manager's chair, and he said, you know, he said, uh, Alex Del Vecchio is going to retire before long, and he said, as long as I'm here, you're going to be my next captain. I want you to be my next captain. And I said, well, that's really great. I love Detroit. I don't want to get traded. I'm getting back into shape now. And two weeks later, that's when I got traded to St. Louis. It's amazing. We mentioned in the open about the streak, um, but we didn't talk about the inspiration throughout the streak. Could you tell us a little bit about who was your inspiration to continue to play every game? And it's also interesting to note that this streak was in an age prior to helmets. Looking at all the information that's since come out about CTE and, and brain trauma, you know, looking back at that era, are you surprised that a lot of the players from your generation aren't suffering the same issues that guys from the 90s are? Well, uh, to me, I think there was more respect for the heads when the guys didn't have helmets. I mean, I've got, I've got 200 stitches on my face and uh, back of my head, and I've whacked my head more times than I can think. I have never been diagnosed with a concussion. Uh, I've, I've played with one eye where I couldn't see out of my eye, and, uh, you know, the, you'd go into the, the, the doctor before the game and he'd say, how you feeling? And he'd say, I feel great. And he'd say, okay, can you see? Oh, yeah, I can see. And, uh, <laughs> okay, you can play kind of thing. And I never wanted to miss any games. It wasn't anything special. I don't think I'm any different than any other hockey player that played the game. For me, my motivation was my sister. I had a sister that was five years younger than me that was crippled, that had polio, and she was in a wheelchair. And her, na- her legs never grew. Her, they never got any muscles on her legs. So she was around the house all the time, and, and I was out playing football and hockey and baseball and all the different sports and never quit moving. And she was always in a wheelchair. And it was really hard for me to say, oh, I got a little bit of a sore ankle or I got a sore knee or, or something like that when I knew that in, in a week it would, I'd be right back in the lineup. So I, I really had a tough time feeling sorry for myself if, if I was sick or, or not feeling well. I always reverted back to my sister and I said, no, I can't, I can't miss this day. I never missed any days of school. So... You know, it wasn't it wasn't something that I planned to do as a hockey guy, but it was something that I was uh, that I grew up 
living like that. I broke my nose when I was 12 years old in school playing basketball. Guy elbowed me in the head, and we had a game that night. And I came home, and my face was all bandaged up and everything, and my dad said, well, I guess you're not playing tonight. And I said, well, do I skate with my nose? And he said, no, I guess you don't. I said, well, I guess I'm playing then. So I played the game. So it, it, it wasn't when I got into the NHL or when I was trying to break a streak or anything like that. It was just a way of life for me. I, when, I felt, when I felt sick, I felt better living a normal day and then sitting in bed and, and, and feeling sick. I would go to practice, and then I'd sweat it out and feel pretty good after that. And, you know, you weren't feeling 100%, but uh, all of a sudden you were, you were okay. So it was just kind of the way I lived. And, and, and watching my sister struggle through life with, without, uh, without uh, uh, being able to ever walk, she walked in braces and crutches, and my parents took care of her and all that stuff. And another great thing about Detroit, before Ned Harkness got involved in everything, is I, I got involved with Chrysler uh, cars. I was a car guy. And uh, they uh, signed me to, Gordy was working for Lincoln Mercury, and I think Alex was working for Pontiac or something, and the guys had deals with, with the car companies in, in Detroit. And uh, Dodge came to me and said, we'd like to sign you to a contract. And I said, well, I don't really need any more money. He, he said, uh, I, I said, I'm making $15,000 a year. I said, I don't need any more money, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can build my sister a hand-controlled car and get my dad a car. My dad's never had a new car. So they, that was part of my contract. They gave me a, a 1970 Dodge Challenger with a 426 Hemi, two four-barrel carburetors, and 600 horsepower. And that's what I drove. And they delivered a car to my sister in Calgary. And it turned her life around. She took that car and she drove to uh, college in Northridge, California. She went to Bible College in uh, uh, California, transferred down to Idaho where she met her husband. Uh, she's still married. She has a couple of kids. And and the car opened up her whole life for her. So uh, things like that are, 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 for me, the hockey part of me being allowed to be a hockey player and being able to do that for for her was was really special. We're rounding out our interview with the great Gary Unger. Uh, quick two questions before we let you go. You're 33 years old when you joined the Oilers. I asked you what you learned from playing 216 games with Gordie Howe. What do you think Mark Messier, Wayne Gretzky, and Paul Coffey learned from playing 75 games with Gary Unger? Well, <laughs> well they were just kids at the time. 20 years uh, old. It was a fun team. It was like playing on a junior team. I wish I had been a little bit younger and maybe been able to keep up with them a little bit better. But it, it was a fun. It was a fun ride. Uh, I, I taught. I taught Gretzky how to how to score off the face off. You know when you're on on your off on on your forehand uh, forehand face off in their end. I'd scored several goals right off the draw. When the when the other the way the referee watching the referee's hand, you know timing and all that stuff, uh, but I don't think I taught them an awful lot. They were they were great players. Uh, they had a great work ethic. Uh, they were having fun. Uh, there was also Paul Coffey and Grant Fuhr and 
Andy Moog, still one of my closest friends. I now that I'm in Alberta, I'm I'm uh, we have a I work for the Banff Hockey Academy. We have a kids academy here. Uh, next week, I'll be going up to Edmonton to do a a. Uh, uh, Alumni hockey game with the Oilers against the Army for for Remembrance Day called Hockey Heroes. Uh, I'm still involved with all the different alumni, so all the different teams that I played on. So uh, th- those guys were were on their way up, and I was I was kind of at the end of my career. So uh, I just taught them to to enjoy the game and 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 have fun and and be the hardest working guy on the ice. Lastly, do you think that if you had spent a majority of your career with an original six team, that the conversation uh, about you and Hockey Hall of Fame would have been a little different and, and you'd probably be in the hall by now? Well, you know, you, uh, first of all, I don't worry about it. It's not something I know I had a great career. Uh, if that happens, it happens. But uh, there's so many great players that played the game. I was not in a very good situation sometimes uh, to win a Stanley Cup. And I think a lot of the, 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 the playoff-type hockey, uh, we, we struggled a little bit with St. Louis trying to, trying to go farther in the playoffs. Uh, I, had some, I had some great years, but I think there are some, some greater players that were out there that, that went farther in the playoffs and won Stanley Cups and things like that. And uh, you know, I, I really have no regrets as far as whether I'm in or I'm out. Uh, I'm just happy to sit back and say I played against Phil Esposito. I played against uh, uh, Glenn Sather. I played with Glenn Sather. Glenn's still a, a very good friend of mine. Lives in Banff here, actually. Uh, so, you know, Gordy Howe, Frank Mohavlich, uh Bobby Bond, all these guys. Uh, I don't need the Hall of Fame to to, to reflect on my career and say, uh, I, I, I'm missing something here because there's way too many other good players out there. Awesome, Gary. We really appreciate your time tonight. Always a pleasure watching you play. I remember those days well in OR when the Rangers used to play the Blues. You know, and you know Jim Gordon and Bill Chadwick would always mention what number game of the streak it was. So it was always uh, that was first and foremost in the broadcast. So brought back a lot of memories for me. We really appreciate your time tonight. Well, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you guys. I, I'm a Ranger fan now because of Glenn. I know Stemmer's there. Uh, you know, all those guys uh, that I used to play against. Teddy Irvin played on my line for a while. There was a lot of trades between the Cat and, uh, and St. Louis, and then the Cat came to St. Louis. So uh, Emil Francis is a good friend, and all these guys. So, so there's a pretty good connection. Mike Murphy is another good friend of mine. Uh, played on my wing, and uh, I know he played for the Rangers for a while. So I, went to the King uh, I have fond memories of of New York and the and the New York Rangers. Awesome. We'll send you a link to Ted Irvin. He was on with us last week. So thanks so much, Gary. We'll speak to you soon. All right. Okay, guys. Thanks for the time. Our pleasure, Gary Unger.